spot. Es hora de leer la Biblia. From now on, the Bible study will have Spanish lessons at the beginning. <clears throat> and everyone's being quizzed. Okay, so today, Leviticus, uh, chapter 8 and or 9 and 10. Maxwell, whenever you're ready, feel free. Lexio Leviticus uh, chapters 9 through 10. Aaron, offer, <laughs> Aaron offers sacrifices. The day after the ordination rites were completed, Moses called Aaron and his sons to, and the leaders of Israel. He said to Aaron, take a young bull and a ram without any defects and offer them to the Lord. The bull for a sin offering and the ram for a burnt offering. Then the people of Israel to take a then tell all the people of Israel to take a male goat for a sin offering, a one-year-old calf, and a one-year-old lamb without any defects for a burnt offering, and a bull and a ram for a fellowship offering. They are to sacrifice them to the Lord with the grain offering mixed with the mix of oil. They must do this because the Lord will appear to them today. They brought to the front of the tent everything that Moses commanded. And the whole community assembled there to worship the Lord. Moses said, The Lord has commanded you to do all this, so that the dazzling light of his presence can appear to you. Then he said to Aaron, Go to, go to the altar and offer the sin offering and the burnt offering to take away your sins and the sins of the people. Present this offering to take away the sins of the people, just as the Lord commanded. Aaron went to the altar and killed the young bull, which was for his own sin offering. His sons brought him the blood, and he dipped his finger in it, put some of it on the projections at the corners of the altar, and poured out the rest of it at the base of the, of the altar. Then he burned, out, burned on the altar the fat, the kidneys, and the best part of the liver, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. But he burned the meat and the skin outside the camp. He killed the animal, which was for his own burnt offering. His sons brought him the blood, and he threw it all on four sides of the altar. They had they handed him the head and the other pieces of the animal, and he burned them on the altar. Then he washed the internal organs and the hind legs and burned them on the altar on top of, uh, of the burnt offering. After that, he presented the people's offerings. He took the goat that was to be offered for the people's sins, killed it, and offered it, as he had done with his own sin offering. He also brought the animal for the burnt offering and offered it to according to regulations. He presented the grain offering and took a handful of flour and burned it on the altar. This was in addition to the daily burnt offering. He killed the bull and the ram as a fellowship offering for the people. His sons brought him the blood, and he threw it on all four sides of the altar. Aaron put the fat parts of the bull and the ram on top of the breasts of the animals and carried it all to the altar. He burned the fat on the altar and presented the breasts and the right hind legs as a special gift to the Lord for the priests, as Moses had commanded. When Aaron had finished all the sacrifices, he raised his hands over the people and blessed them, and then stepped down. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of the Lord's presence, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the dazzling light of the Lord's presence appeared to all the people. Suddenly the Lord sent a fire, and it consumed the burnt offering and the fat parts on the altar. When the people saw it, they all shouted and bowed down with their faces to the ground. The Sin of Nadab and Abihu Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his firepan, put live coals in it, added incense, and presented it to the Lord. But this fire was not holy, because the Lord had not commanded them to present it. Suddenly the Lord sent fire, and it burned them to death there in the presence of the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord was speaking about when he said, All who serve me must respect my holiness. I will reveal my glory to my people. But Aaron remained silent. Moses called Mishael and Elisaphan, the sons of Israel, Aaron's uncle, and said to them, Come here and carry your cousins' bodies away from the sacred temple and put them outside the camp. So they came and took holding of the clothing on the corpses and carried them outside the camp, just as Moses had commanded. Then Moses said to Aaron 
and to his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, do not leave your hair uncombed or tear your clothes to show that you are mourning. If you do, you will die, and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But all other Israelites are allowed to mourn this death caused by the fire which the Lord sent. Do not leave the entrance of the tent, or you will die, because you have been consecrated by the anointing oil of the Lord. So he did as Moses said. The Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to enter the tent of the presence after drinking wine or beer. If you do, you will die. This is a law to be kept by all your descendants. You must distinguish between what belongs to God and what is for general use, between what is ritually clean and what is ritually unclean. You must teach the people of Israel all the laws which I have given you through Moses. Moses said to Aaron, as to his reigning sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Take the grain offering that is left over from the food offering to the Lord, make it unleavened bread, make unleavened bread of it, and eat it beside the altar, because this offering is very holy. Eat it in the holy place. It is the part that belongs to you and your sons from the food offered to the Lord. That is what the Lord commanded me. But you and your families may eat the breast and the hind leg that are presented as the special gift and the special contribution to the Lord for the priests. You may eat them in any ritually clean place. These offerings have been given to you and your children as part as the part that as the part that belongs to you from the fellowship offerings of the people of Israel. They shall bring the hind leg and breast at the time that the fat is presented as a food offering to the Lord. These parts belong to you and your children forever, just as the Lord had commanded. Moses asked about the goat for the sin offering and learned that it has already been burned. This made him angry at Eleazar and Ithamar, and he demanded, Why didn't you eat the sin offering in the sacred place? It is very holy, and the Lord has given it to you in order to take away the sin of the community. Since the, its blood was not brought into the sacred tent, you should have eaten, it, eaten the sacrifice there, as I had commanded. Aaron answered, If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? The people presented their sin offering to the Lord today, and they brought their burnt offering, but still these terrible things have happened to me. When Moses heard this, he was satisfied. Awesome. Okay, so not much really, but furthering of the narrative happens here. Um, again, keeping in mind the idea that there's these representatives that are very clearly ordained by God, right, and passed on. Um, keeping in line, of course, with Adam, Moses, Moses ordaining Aaron, and their their priesthood has a specific purpose. And so, uh, essentially, Leviticus 9, Aaron offers his first sacrifice, his first priestly duties. It's amazing. There's this grand theophany when, you know, God descends from heaven and consumes the sacrifice in the form of fire, right? So, that's just essentially chapter 9. And so, um, Depending on translations, the death of Nadab and Abihu, um, their strange fire or unauthorized fire, essentially they were offering unholy fire. Um, so the fire f was from some other source than the altar, and so they were slain. This, you know, this event leaves sort of like a somber mood on the account of the inauguration of the priesthood. It's a pivotal section that emphasized the gravity of the ministerial priesthood of Aaron. Priests are to avoid wine and strong drink um, while ministering and have the privilege and duty of teaching the people the difference between the holy, common, between the clean and the unclean. And so these people, again, keeping in mind that they, these priests are called to be holy, consecrated, set apart, they offered an unholy and unconsecrated, a strange, unauthorized fire to the Lord. Think of this. Think of that, that mass. Instead of using, you know, the bread, we used a chicken leg. How grotesque would that be? How disrespectful would that be? A very similar thing happened in this account. So that's why immediately they were, they were killed. Uh, their lives were claimed. And so... The text also goes as far as to describe the priests as sin bearers, 
for not only to consume the celebratory peace offerings, but even the flesh of the sin offering, so that they might bear the iniquity of the congregation and to make atonement for them before the Lord, as Leviticus 10.17 says. So uh, you see a whole bunch of prefigurations of Christ here, right? Um, the importance, again, of the liturgy of offering proper worship to the Lord, worship that he, again, commands, that he demands, that comes from him. And so here we have an explicit mention of the holy, the common, the unclean, and the clean. And within the next five chapters, five, six chapters, we're going to get into what exactly this means and what it would have meant for a Jew. And so it's very important when you get to the book of Hebrews, as I mentioned, but also with understanding how Jewish the New Covenant, the New Testament is. There's a lot of Jewish symbols here. Think of being washed, being made clean in the blood of the Lamb. You know, some people, oh, yeah, being clean. But it's more than just like clean. It's a, it's a ritual cleanliness that from before you were unclean, you are now clean and then you're now sanctified, you know. And so that's what these different sin offerings, the, the peace offerings, what, what they do, they make the unclean clean, the, the common become holy, they become consecrated. Um, so if you ever, so moving forward, think of the word holy as to mean consecrated or set apart. And that's essentially what it does mean. But oftentimes we think holy like somebody who's good, like a saint, right? A saint is holy. Um, but holiness can also be attributed, as we have saw earlier, to Aaron and his priest's vestments. The importance of them being consecrated, being made holy, being set apart. And so that brings us to a close with the ordination of... Um, or rather the inauguration of the Levitical priesthood. Now they have a duty to teach the people between the difference of holy, common, clean, uncommon, right? Unclean, all that stuff. And this is going to be known as the, the holiness cycle, the holiness code, um, the cleanliness code. And so we'll see that soon enough. Uh, think also where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because they hold to this tradition of washing their hands, right? He says, outwardly they're clean, but inward they're filthy and dirty. They seem to have just completely discounted the cleanliness code that was established here in Leviticus. Because on the inside, they're just ugly people. But on the outside, they want to be seen. On the outside, they want to stand out. They want to appear as though they're clean and holy. But in fact, they're not. Not at all. And so, uh, are there any questions thus far on Leviticus? If not, I kind of want to get through the Old Testament quick. So we could get more out of the, the gospel, unlike yesterday. Um, we can jump to the Psalms right away then. Psalm chapter 9, or Psalm 8, my bad. Psalm 8, divine majesty and human dignity. To a leader according to the Griffin, the palsum of David. O Lord, or, or our origin, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set glory above the heavens, out of your mouths, the babes and infants. You have found a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemies and the avenger. When I took your heavens and work of the fingers, the moon of the stars that you have established, what are the human beings of the mindful of them, mortals that you take care of them for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God, and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the breasts of uh, the be the beasts of our of the field, the the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the path, along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sergeant, how majestic is your name in, in all the earth. Awesome. So like the content of this psalm is essentially, it's a, it's a lament psalm. Keep in mind, there are certain things of that sort of depict this. So one would be distress, uh, a cry, a petition to God for deliverance, 
um, an assertion of innocence or a confession of sin, an appeal for judgment of the evildoer, a vow or promise to give thanks or offering uh, to the Lord, an expression of confidence that God has heard or will hear the psalmist's plea. And so what essentially this psalm talks about is this marveling at the grandeur of God. And the psalmist is struck first by the smallness of human beings and creation. And then the royal dignity and power of God has graciously bestowed upon them. So that's very um, seen, it's very present here in this psalm. And you can see that being lament, um, talking about the lowliness of humans, lamenting in, in that fashion. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're just a whole bunch of spiritual truths. This is, again, a book of wisdom, not much narrative. Um, they're more so, much like the book of Job, the entirety of the book of Job, or at least the big chunk of it that we went over, um, with the exception of maybe the first chapters and like the ending chapters, was spiritual meditation, spiritual reflection that should be done. Um, so I encourage you, again, go back, read this on your own, think about, ponder about what it means. Um, oh, Lord, our Lord, how awesome is your name through all the earth? You know, ponder that. You know, There's a lot that can be said with that. And of course, I think you know, it'd be more fruitful on our own times. But if there's no questions, I'll just jump straight to the gospel. Okay. Guys, don't flame me for this. I'm going to try it just because Maxwell tried it. Seguencia Sancti Evangelii Segundum Luca. And you guys say Gloria TV Domine. Anyways. So, this is debates about the Sabbath. Verse 1. While he was going through a field of grain on Sabbath, his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating them. Some Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them in reply, Have you not read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? He went into the house of God, took the bread of offering, which only the priests could lawfully eat, ate of it, and shared it with his companions. Then he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogues and taught, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. Scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely to see if he would cure on the Sabbath, so they might discover a reason to accuse him. But he realized their intention and said to the man with the withered hand, Come up and stand before us. He rose and stood there. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath rather than to do evil, to save life rather than to destroy it? Looking around at them, he then said to him, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was restored. But they became enraged and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. So, um, essentially, this calls to mind. Why do we Catholics worship on Sunday? Um, as opposed to, you know, what the Jews did. And, you know, Seventh-day Adventists, they, they have this question. It's like, okay, well, when that was the whole premise of them being founded was every other Christian is wrong because they worship on Sunday when Sabbath is on Saturday. What does Jesus say here? He says, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay. Um, but what's important to note is that one, yeah, Jesus is the Sabbath, but there's a reason the early Christians changed the day of worship, why they were observing a new day. So, here, here's what the catechism has to say. It says Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week because it is the first day of Christ's resurrection. It recalls the first creation, Justin Martyr. Um, so essentially what the early church fathers were seeing was that Christ's resurrection on Sunday, he created a whole new universe. A whole new creation was made. And we who are baptized enter into his death and thus resurrect with him in this new creation. So that's why baptism is so powerful. Okay. And so being with that in mind, it says, and they continue, because it is the eighth day following the Sabbath, it symbolizes the new creation ushered in by Christ's resurrection. For Christians, it has become the first of all days and the first of all feasts, the Lord's day, Sunday. We all gather on the day of the sun, for it is the first day when God separating matter from darkness made the world. And on this same day, Jesus, our Savior, rose from the dead. Okay. The Sabbath was meant for a day of worship. Every single Sabbath, they had to offer, the, the Jews, the Levitical priests, had to offer a sacrifice. Um, and they would be offering the sacrifice of the bread of the presence, which is what we wrote about here. And Jesus references this. 
So what he's showing is that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And with the revelation of you know the Eucharist and the fulfillment thereof of Jesus being the true bread of the presence, he himself offers the sacrifice. And he would have done it around the same time that the Jews would have been preparing um, the sacrifice for Saturday because you're not supposed to work on Saturday. They prepare the sacrifice for the Saturday. And so when he offered himself at the Last Supper, it was in that same time frame on a Friday. And so keeping those things in mind, very clearly here, the early Christians have this idea that this new creation is the day to worship God because this is the day that he has made. Let us worship him. Think of the Psalms there. Um, one other quote here says, Sunday, fulfillment of the Sabbath. Sunday is expressly distinguished from the Sabbath, which it follows chronologically every week. For Christians, it's a ceremonial observance, replaces that of the Sabbath. In Christ's Passover, Sunday fulfills the spiritual truths of the Jewish Sabbath and announces man eternal rest in God. Those who lived according to the old order of things have come to a new hope, no longer keeping the Sabbath, but the Lord's day, in which our life is blessed by him and his death. So Jesus Christ truly is the Lord of the Sabbath. We are to keep all days as holy and consecrated and set apart for the Lord and treat him as not just Saturday, you know. And many times you find us, uh, many, many Catholics, many Christians, Monday through Saturday, biggest sinners in the world, Sunday, they wash their hands and they're good for that day. Monday comes along and they continue. But I observed the Sabbath. I went to Sunday Mass. I did, I did my due diligence, right? I had my one hour. That's not it. That's not what it's supposed to be. You, you, have a, you have a duty to love God in everything that you do, worship him in everything that you do, and keep that going, not just on Sunday, not just on Sabbath or Saturday, but every single day of the week. Because Jesus is the Sabbath. He's the fulfillment of it. And it's through his death on the cross and his resurrection in his new creation that he fulfilled that Sabbath. And that's why we worship on Sunday and not on the Saturday Sabbath. And we still keep the observance of the day of rest on Sunday. Um, so we can continue here in verse 12. It says, in those days, he departed to the mountain to pray. And he spent the night in prayer to God. When day came, he called his disciples to himself. And from then he chose 12, whom also named apostles. Simon, who named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called a zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became, who became a traitor. Again, almost every time that the apostles are mentioned, Peter's first in line, Judas last. Um... And so it continues, verse 17, And he came down with them and stood on a stretch level of ground, a great crowd of his disciples and a large number of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon came to hear him to be healed of their diseases, and even those who were tormented by unclean spirits were cured. Everyone in the crowd sought to touch him because power came forth from him and healed them all. So here is just very simple. People were being healed. So now we have what's known as the Sermon on the Plain. Have you guys heard about this one? I've heard of the Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, it's the same thing. Uh, essentially, the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's, it's a mountain. Um, you think you think of a great plain, you can think of like Midwestern, right? The United States or wherever you may live, some area where it's just flat land. And you think of uh, a great mountain, you can think of like the Rocky Mountains or you know, Mount Everest. But a lot of times people don't know that these mountains are big and they have these sort of flat areas that are still on the mountain. And so the Sermon on the Plain is in fact the Sermon on the Mount. It's just like a plain that's on top of the mountain. And so um, that's why Luke would identify it as such. And it's the exact same sermon. Um, there's some differences uh, that appear to be different, but they're in fact the same, just from a different perspective rather. So continuing in verse 20, it says, and he raised his eyes towards his disciples. He said, Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who, hung, who are hungry, uh, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who are now weeping, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and insult you, and denounce your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Give me one second. Okay. 
Rejoice and leap for joy on that day. Behold, your reward will be great in heaven for their ancestor treated the prophets in the same way. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are filled now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will grieve and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for their ancestors treated the false prophets in that way. Okay. So the Beatitudes are essentially these paradoxical promises. So just think about that. We've been over them before. Um, blessed are those who hate you. Blessed, or blessed are you when people hate you. Like, that's not necessarily something you want, you know. Uh, you don't want to be hated. It's, it's tough. Um, but when you tie this in to another series of blessings and curses from Deuteronomy chapter 8, you can come to see Jesus changing things a bit. So I'm going to go ahead and read through Deuteronomy chapter 8. I know we haven't gone over it, but it just really brings to light this passage. It says, and if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, this is Moses speaking to the Israelites, being careful to do all these commandments which I command you this day, the Lord your God would set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you, overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of the beasts and the increase of your cattle and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading trough. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessings upon you in your barns and in all you undertake. And he will bless you in the land when the Lord gives you, when the Lord God gives you. The Lord will establish you as people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, and walk in his ways. And he says here in verse 15, Deuteronomy 28, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, be careful to do all these commandments and statutes which I command you this day, then all these curses shall be upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the field, cursed shall you be your basket, your kneading trough, shall be the fruit of your body, the fruit of the ground, increase of your cattle, young of your flock, cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send you curses, confusion, frustration in all that you undertake till you are destroyed and perish quickly. So it goes on. It's a pretty long chapter and it gets very dark and very grim, right? All these curses. So what essentially what Moses is saying is, hey, you follow God, you're going to be rich. He's going to love you. He's going to take care of you. You're going to prosper. The enemies won't rise against you. And if you disobey, you're going to have poverty, pestilence, hunger, famine, war, and then finally exile. Now, if you look at the Beatitudes again, what is Jesus saying to his disciples? Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when men persecute you and exclude you and revile you. Rejoice on that day, for your reward is great. Where? In heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. They persecuted them. Right? And he flips in and says, Woe to you who are rich, who are full, who laugh, who are spoken well of. In other, in other words, uh, who are at peace, who are not persecuted. So what has Jesus done? What appears to be done here is in the New Covenant, Jesus is teaching from the servant, the blessings are the curses. And we don't think of it this way. In other words, the way you build up treasure, not on earth, but in heaven, is precisely through suffering. It's through poverty. It's through hunger. It's through mourning. And it's ultimately, above all, through the persecution for the sake of the gospel. It's through persecution for the sake of the Son of Man. So contrast to the earthly blessings in the new covenant are dangerous, they're spiritually dangerous. So what is he saying here? Woe to you that are rich. Think about what he says elsewhere in the gospel. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is essentially saying that those people who are attached to the things of this world, those people who are able to laugh and who enjoy the things of this world, those people who belong to this world are not building up their treasury in heaven. Jesus is saying, the old world has passed away. He's going to build a new, a new heaven, a new earth. That's all going away. And so if you're happy now, you're, you're, you're laughing now, you're going to mourn or weep when you miss out of the kingdom of heaven. And so um, it seems, seems kind of kind of crazy um but that's that's the beauty of the paradox is that 
Jesus for us who are mourning or be comforted? You know, things are hard now. What does Paul say? That the sufferings of this life do not, do not compare to the glories that will come in the end. And so essentially what's being shown forth here is that, you know, the, the blessings are the curses. So another thing about the Beatitudes is that it simply means happy. That's what it, as I was saying, what makes a man happy? Well, first he has to avoid sin. If you want to be happy, stop sinning. Don't walk in the way of sinners or seed or or the seed of scoffers. If you follow the way of sin, you're never going to be happy. Sin never leads to happiness. That's the negative part. The positive part, the positive key to happiness is loving God and loving his word. Okay. So what's important about this is that you gotta, you know, there's like a twofold thing here. Yeah, hate your sin, but love God. There's a positive and a negative to it. With the Beatitudes, there's a positive and a negative to it. And it seems almost paradoxical. So what's so important is that you have to dive into your word. If you're, if you're feeling spiritually dry, if you're feeling like, you know, things just aren't going good, well, okay, are you praying? Are you reading scripture? You know, it's so important that we dive into scripture. It's so important that we meditate on the scriptural truths. You know, the books of wisdom, that we're going over them. It's so important that you go back and take the time to read the psalm, meditate upon what David is saying, meditate upon what, what the psalmist is saying. It's important that you look at these things and understand them because it's through this that you're feeding your spiritual life. If you're not praying, you're spiritually dead. So keeping this in mind with the Beatitudes, all these sufferings here on earth, if you do it for the sake of righteousness, ultimately, for God, you build up your treasury in heaven you will get your reward. Think of Christ. Here's a quote from the Catechism, paragraph 1717. The Beatitudes depicts the countenance of Jesus Christ and portray his charity. They express the vocation of faithful association with the glory of his passion and resurrection. They shed light on the actions and attitudes characteristic of a Christian life. They are paradoxical promises that sustain hope in the midst of tribulations. They proclaim the blessings and rewards already secured, however dimly, for Christ's disciples. They have begun in the lives of all the great saints and the Blessed Virgin Mary. So Christ on the cross, poor in spirit, yeah. I mean, he lived in poverty. Think of this when him and Mary went to go offer the, the cleansing sacrifice, the, the, the sacrifice of the purification sacrifice of the temple, the presentation of the temple. They had to offer the one for the poor people. So they were definitely poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus, the smallest, the shortest verse in the entire Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus. Jesus knew this was going to come. But in true, I don't know if you can call it Christian charity, but in true, the trueness of who Christ is and, and his love for people, he wept. He felt. Blessed are those who mourn. He was truly happy. So on the cross, when you see the cross, it's a perfect symbol of love. It's a sad thing to look at. But also, Jesus is happiest because he is poor. He is persecuted. You know, he is, he's poor in spirit. He's being persecuted. He's on the cross. He's suffering for the sake of righteousness. He's hunger. He has hunger and thirst for justice. So much so that he's willing to humble himself down to die on a cross, the form of a slave. He's truly, if you want to be like Christ, you've got to live the Beatitudes. This is a reflection of who Christ is. The Beatitudes are a reflection of who Christ is. And so they are these paradoxical promises. They're supposed to give us hope when we're going through trials and through tribulations. Because these are promises from God. And so we can draw on this. From this section. Um, and so moving on. Here at verse 27. It says. But to you who say. I love your enemy. I love. Excuse me. But to you who 
Here I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who, per who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. To the person who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other one as well. And from the person who takes your cloak, do not withhold even your tunic. Give to him who asks of you, and from the one who takes what is yours, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. For if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend money to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But rather love your enemies and do good to them. Lend expecting nothing back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. For he himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. So in this section, you know, Jesus is not calling us to have some purely natural virtue. He's calling us what seems to be abnormal. You know, how can you love your the person who persecutes you? Well, oftentimes people are confused because they think love is a feeling. But what Jesus is showing here is an act of choice. Jesus chose to be on the cross. Here he's saying, pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who hate you. He's saying, these are actions that you do. So if someone's hurt you in your life so severely, pray for them. Your prayers could keep that person from doing what they did to you to someone else in the future. And that's what it means to truly love, to will the good of the other without wanting something in return. That's what true, genuine agape is is to love the good of, to, to will the good of another. And so this, this is not some kind of natural love. It's a, it's a supernatural love. He says, give to those who can't give back. They can't repay um, to you what has been given. Um, Paul says in Romans that God loves us while we were yet his enemies. Think of that. Jesus was just beaten, scourged, spat on, crown of thorns on him. He's on the cross. He can barely breathe. His arms are hyperextended. His chest is compressing in on him. Every breath he takes hurts him. And it's a slow and painful death. And the first words out of his mouth are, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Though we were his enemies, God still loved us. What he's showing us here is that our enemies, they can love those who love, the, who love them. They can do good to those who do good to them. What you're called to do is give a supernatural love. God's mercy, God's grace is infinitely given on the cross, although not everyone is saved. We know this, this is that truth, that not everyone's going to be saved. But God still gives infinitely, freely. He gives an overabundance of infinite grace, knowing that he doesn't need to give all that much for the amount of people that would be saved. But he does it anyway, out of love, to will the good of another. And so it's not some natural, weird, abnormal love, but it's a supernatural love. And so directly the word from Paul is, though we were yet enemies, God loved us. The greatest enemies were there present at the cross. And Jesus asked his father to forgive them. And that's what's being taught here in Luke. Be merciful, just as also your father is merciful. Think of, think of the God of the Old Testament many times. You know, and I hate to use that word or that phrasing, the God of the Old Testament, because it's the same God. But many times people make this distinction. Oh, he's an evil, vengeful God that does all these horrible things. People who say that just haven't read the Old Testament, one. But two, they misunderstand it if they have. Countless times. Picture it like this. It's this love story is what the Bible is. From the beginning, God wishes to be in communion with his creation. He wants to love them. He gives them everything they could possibly need at the garden. 
All he asks, don't betray me. What do they do? They betray him. God's still faithful. God promises. and He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to promise anything to Abraham. But he does. He promised to make him and his offspring a big nation of kingdom priests. And so he has that promise there for them. You continue down the line, you have the time of Moses. They just got liberated from Egypt. We just read this. And they have the incident of the golden calf. And God still forgives them. Over and over and over again through apostasy and idolatry, the people of the Old Testament are turning away from God, hurting him. They're, what essentially is their bridegroom, the bride of Israel, the bride, is essentially cheating on the bridegroom over and over and over again. And the bridegroom is ever so merciful and ever so giving and ever so loving. He continues to love them through all of this. It gets to the point where he can no longer contain his love, that he has to come down bodily to be with us. And he does so. Think about this. He's infinitely greater than all of us in every way, shape, and form. But he condescends. He comes down. He takes on our sinful humanity to become one of us, to, 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 to weep like us, to suffer like us, to worry like us, to have this life with pain. And he does so all out of love. And it's through his death on the cross that we can receive this infinite grace of love through baptism, right? And he does so again infinitely and graciously without holding anything back and he calls us to love our enemies in a similar way and it's not by a feeling but by an action christ didn't feel the love for us and we were saved it was his actions on the cross and his resurrection that was saved and so for the people who hurt you in the past offer up a prayer for them Set aside a time to pray a rosary for them. Think about the treasure you'd be building up in heaven for that. If those people have hurt you so bad that you, you understand the teaching of the church and maybe they're in the state of mortal sin and it's like they might not even get into heaven. The love God calls us to have is to be worried for the person that hurts you that they don't make it to heaven no matter how badly they hurt you. Wanting and wanting to try your best to will that through prayer, through blessings. Speak good of those who revile you. Pray for those who persecute you. That's essentially what's being taught here. And so we move on in verse 37. It says, stop judging and you will not be judged. Stop condemning and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Given the gifts will be given to you, a good measure, packed together, shaken down and overflowing, will be poured into your lap. For the measure which, which you measure will in return be measured out to you. And he told them a parable. Can a blind person guide a blind person? Will not both fall into a pit? No disciple is superior to the teacher. But when they are fully trained, every disciple will be like his teacher. Why do you notice the splinter in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the wooden beam in your own? How can you say to your brother... Brother, let me remove that splinter in your eye when you do not even notice the wooden beam in your own eye. You hypocrite, remember the wooden beam from your eye first, then you'll see clearly to remove the splinter from your brother's eye. So essentially what, what this entails here, um, it's talking more so about spiritual pride. And so who's he talking to? Specifically the apostles, okay? Think of Peter. He says, no, Lord, I would never abandon you. He says that in his pride. And he denies Jesus three times. And so what he's saying is, the blind cannot lead the blind. So how is one not blind? Well, by humbling themselves, by learning. And so you can think of, and this is kind of heavy, okay? And I hope you guys get to read it one day, especially when you're a lot older. But St. John of the Cross's work. He talks about how we're so blinded by the things of this world. We're so attached to the things of this world. We cannot see God. We cannot have that perfect communion with God. 
And that's because our soul has been so tainted in every little thing that we're attached to. And so this blindness, relying on God, allows us to see. Detaching ourselves from the world, that's why fasting, asceticism, especially in this time of Lent, when you're fasting and you're practicing asceticism, or rather um, these practices, penance, rather is another way you can call them, penance, if you're doing penance regularly, you're detaching yourself from the world, you're emptying yourself out, and it hurts to be empty, but you're being filled with the blinding light of God. And you can think of all the great saints who they speak of themselves as just the worst sinners ever. They're just horrible, horrible people. Think of the little flower. She has a she has a huge excerpt or a huge book she wrote. Not huge, but she has a book she wrote about how she's the one of the worst sinners that's ever lived and just terrible person. She's the age of twenty four. What could she have possibly done that means she's so terrible? Right? She she joined the convent when she was sixteen. But what's important is that she detached herself from the world, has allowed God to enter into her, and she sees things completely different. She sees just how great the chasm, just how great the divide between us and our sinful humanity and God is. So if you find yourself compromising with sin, let's say you cuss. Oh, it's not that big a deal. It's a, it's a venial sin. It's not that big a deal. I don't need to go to confession for it. I'm good. A great saint would find themselves the grossest sinner ever because they're detached from the world and they have the light of God inside of them and they're able to see this. And so one other teaching that Jesus gives us is, you know, out of abundance of our heart, do our mouths speak? So as our mouth speaks, so will our hearts be shaped. So what you say forms what comes what is from what comes from your heart, but it also forms your heart. And so we, it's this age-old belief in the Catholic Church, lex orandi, lex credendi, the law of praise, the law of belief, right? And so how you pray, how you speak, how you act, reflects what's on the inside and truly changes what's on the inside. And so it's very important because if you're showing yourself in a bad light, an issue if you're a so-called devout catholic that's cussing up a storm how, how good is that you're a so-called devout catholic that's watching things that you really shouldn't be watching because they portray bad things they have issues in them what are you feeding what are you what are you putting in you um so Oftentimes when you go to confession, right, you do the examination of conscience, you examine yourself and, and you guys should, and I encourage everyone to do an examination of conscience every day. Um, it helps you to see and to be more open to what is putting in you. And so think of no good tree can bear good fruit. No bad tree can bear bad fruit. Um, this is, this is the following three, three lines. I'll read it real quick. It says, a good tree does not bear rotten fruit, nor does a rotten tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For people do not pick figs from their thorn bushes, nor do they gather grapes from brambles. A good person out of the store of goodness in his heart produces good, but an evil person out of the store of evil produces evil. For from the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay. So later on in Galatians, Paul says this. He gives a good identification. He says, Fornication, impurity, self-indulgence, idolatry, sorcery, malice, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, conflict, factions, envy, murder, drunkenness, arousing, and things of this sort. These are things of a bad tree. These are bad fruits of a bad tree. But what are things of a good tree? Paul immediately follows. He says, the fruit, however, of the Spirit is charity, joy, patience, goodness, kindness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Are you what are you exhibiting? What are you practicing? Okay. And examine also, what are you putting in yourself? Are you watching things that are patience, goodness, kindness, you know, gentle, self-control, joy, peace? Are you watching fornication, impurity, idolatry, anger, jealousy, quarrels, conflict? What are you putting in yourself? 
is what you're going to give out. But what you give out is showing what's inside you already. So it's this cycle there. So you got to be a tree that bears good fruit, not a tree that bears bad fruit. And so the last section here says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I command? I'll show you what one is like who comes to me, listen to my words and acts on them. And the one is like a person building a house who dug deeply and laid the foundation on a rock. When the floods came, the river burst against that house, but could not shake it because it was very well built. But the one who listens, it does not act like a person who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against it, it collapsed at once. It was completely destroyed. So very simply, you listen to God, right? You have the Bible. These are, this is his words. He tells you exactly what you need to be happy in the Beatitudes, what you need to be hopeful. He, he tells you, as, we, as we've just read, um, how you're supposed to love, love like he did, be merciful like he did. And then he tells you how we need to be humble. We need to be able to listen. We need to be able to have that good tree bear that good fruit. We need to be that good tree, bear that good fruit. So he tells us these things. Now you've listened. I just gave this Bible talk, right? You listened. Act on them. Very clearly, he end, this chapter's ended with this, this sort of commandment to act on what God has taught. And he's taught it here very clearly in his word. And then he gives us a parable. You know, any house that doesn't have a foundation, yeah, if a flood comes, a house is going to break apart because it's not stable. You need the foundation. So what's the foundation for us? Prayer, reading of scripture. You know, it's good if you're praying your rosary every day. That's good. It's not enough. If you're praying one rosary a day, that's not enough. If that's all you're doing, if that's the extent of your spiritual life, that's good. Many Catholics don't do that. But you got you to gotta dive deeply into his word. And you got to read what he has said. You got to... And that's, that's essentially what the Bible study is. So check that off for you guys, right? You're doing good. But on days we don't maybe have Bible study or days you can't make Bible study, dive into his word. Even if it's just a passage from the gospel. If all you're praying is one rosary a day and that's your, the extent of your conversation with God, that's a problem. You've got to reach out to God in prayer. And, there's, and the church is so rich. The traditions of the church are so rich. There's so many things, um, so many novenas, so many different devotionals you can have. You know, it's it's really just a blessing. We have so many things. So there, there's really no reason we should be lacking in prayer because you, you've heard it. Now act on it, as he says. So 